Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancox and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and with me today is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a minute to put a quick plug in for something Michael Green and our friends at Kaba are involved with, to raise awareness for carbon pricing as a solution to our urgent climate crisis. Kaba is working with Climate X Change to raffle off six amazing prizes on July 4th, 2017. The grand prize is a Tesla Model 5 sedan or Model X SUV, each worth about $120,000. Plus, they pay the federal income tax on the prize. Uh, and there's a few other great prizes. And there are only 2,500 tickets available. So if you're interested, go to climate, the letter X, change, raffle.org. On this podcast, we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future. And one of those change agents who has been working diligently on issues of environmental justice and equitable development for more than 30 years is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. So today, Vernice and I are going to take the opportunity to chat with each other a little bit, particularly about the uh, march in Washington for on the climate march in Washington, uh, as well as a few other issues. So Vernice, welcome, and um, you're on the hot seat today. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. So... Tell us a little bit about the Climate March. When was it? And it didn't seem to get as much attention as the Science March. So maybe you can just share a little bit about the march. You know, that's true. I was I was noticing that myself. I've been a little bothered by that because it was a phenomenal march. So the People's Climate March, which was the second People's Climate March, right? The first was in September of 2014 in New York City, and it was the largest march ever in the history of New York City, a city known for lots of demonstrations and, and large gatherings, but it was ginormous. And then folks came together and decided that in the context of all the assaults that are going out across sort of our government right now on all things science, environment, policy, anti-poverty, social justice, fair housing, you name it, and it's sort of under assault right now, folks decided that it was time to come together and do another um, march. But this one focused on bringing together a variety of different folks in different sectors working on a variety of different issues, but all under the banner of climate justice. So the second People's Climate March took place last Saturday, the 29th of April, in Washington, D.C., and it was really incredible, which is why I'm so surprised it didn't get as much press as the Science March, which was just the week before, the Saturday before. And the weather was god-awful for the Science March, but it was extraordinary from a climate perspective for the Climate March because it was 91 degrees with a heat index of 96, which is unheard of in the District of Columbia for April. It is only the second time D.C. has been that high 
hot. And the, the first time was in 1974 on April 29th. So it was, um, it was extraordinary all, all the way around. And there were, I saw the Washington Post say there were 200,000 people marching. But since then, over the course of the week, I've seen the number 300,000 people. I was towards the front of the march, marching with um, groups representing frontline communities. And the environmental community was all the way in the back when we got. So we were all marching up and down or up Pennsylvania Avenue, down Pennsylvania Avenue from the Capitol to the White House and then on to the Washington Monument. And by the time we got to the front of the White House, the folks at the back of the march had not left the Capitol yet. So it was literally a mile long of hundreds of thousands of people marching. It was just amazing. And um, not to get, not to get into the ridiculous science of crowd comparison, but <laughs> I don't think that that's um, I don't think that the science march got that big of I mean they got a big crowd and I'm not trying to diminish the science. Yeah. I'm just kind of wondering why you think that the the climate march, which got a lot more people, didn't get as much press as the science march. I think there's a little bit of March fatigue in the press, right? So we had the Women's March on, what was it, January 22nd, the day after the inauguration. Then there was a big tax march here on Saturday, April 17th. And then there was the Science March on the following Saturday, right? And then there was the People's Climate March the Saturday after that. So I think the press may be, you know, sort of fatigued out. But for me personally, it was the first march that I've been in. Not that I'm not a veteran of of marches, but I just had a variety of different really pressing things to do that kept me from getting to the other marches, especially the women's march that I desperately wanted to be out there and be a part of. But I think the press has has a march fatigue, but we don't. So, you know, so that's that's the important thing that. So, you know, that people are tossing around this phrase intersectionality a lot. And it's sort of a, you know, a, a new catchphrase. And, it you know, essentially it means bringing together people from all different kinds of walks of life, of spheres of influence and interest, and bringing them together under one umbrella to work together, to do things together, and to raise their voice together. And the Climate March did that more so than anything I've seen it was literally, it was my whole life in that march. So right in front of me were people from New York City, from my hometown, from Sunset Park, Brooklyn, from Uprose. In front of them were folks from other frontline communities and indigenous folks. I had a lot of, a lot of friends, personal friends who were up in the march ahead of me. I had dozens of friends behind me with the environmental groups, labor groups, you know, just all kinds of people were marching the, the American Nurses Association, all kinds of scientists were out there also. So it was just, you know, it was something that you don't often see that all of us came together on be, to raise our voices on behalf of climate justice. Boy, I, I'm writing notes feverishly. So um, a couple different topics, we're going to go in a couple different directions, but so you know, we're, we're recording this morning, the day after the um, House of Representatives have passed the repeal of Obamacare. I'm wondering about you. We talk about this uh, march fatigue, right? So we, we've got a lot of marches. People seem to be really energized. And so what's the impact of this? All the folks marching is, is will these public displays be turned into electoral an impact on the electoral level at some point, do you think? Or, or are we just having a bunch of marches and feeling good about it. No, I think the the marches are an expression of how 
motivated people are to change and to lift themselves up. I would say, though, that there is a critique from within the progressive community. And one of the critiques is if, at least for the women who showed up for the Women's March, which was, oh my goodness, I think they said it was close to a million people. Now, we've had a lot of marches in the District of Columbia. Lots of people march on their national government all the time, but nobody has ever, not many people have never, ever, ever come here at once to raise their voices about anything. So it was historic. Maybe with the exception of the Obama uh, first inauguration. Well, that wasn't a demonstration, right? That was a that was an expression of love for our, our newly installed president. But that wasn't a demonstration. These are demonstrations where people are coming out to oppose something. Right. That was an affirmation of the of the selection of Barack Obama as president. That's the only distinction I would make between the two. But I think there were more women out there or maybe as many women out there as there were people who came to Barack Obama's first inauguration. But the point is that there was a sign somebody sent, Dr. Bob Bullard sent around a a tweet that I think Huffington Post had first posted um, saying the the best 10 signs held by black women at the Women's March. And one of them was just hashtag 94%. And without any explanation, I knew exactly what that sign meant, which is 94% of African-American women who voted, voted for Hillary Clinton. And the the question is, so all of y'all who are out here today, what did you do? Did you all vote? You know, were you, did you make sure that, that people in your sphere of influence were informed enough to make a, 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 a decision about who they voted for in an informed way? And the answer to that would have to be no. Because the, the group of women who, you know, who really fell off the wagon, if you will, were college educated white women who voted for the current president. And, and we still can't figure that out. But, you know, so it's like we need to get T-shirts um, black women who say, you know, just hashtag 94%. Like I showed up, I did my part. I brought everybody with me because I knew what was at stake. So now we all seem to know what's at stake, Mike. And I'm glad that it's only taken a mere matter of days, months into this administration for people to be really clear that we are all under threat. And and I've been thinking and, and sort of really meditating on a a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King this year, so far this year, it just keeps coming up in my consciousness, which is Dr. King is quoted to have said, we may all have come here on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And that seems to be the organizing theory that's bringing a lot of people together in ways that I've actually never seen in my in my 30 plus years of civic activism and engagement. I've never seen folks come together like this. Again, besides the energy, which I think is which is is important, are you seeing evidence of organization behind that that's going to produce or, or impact uh, the direction the government is taking? Yes. So for one thing, I and I'm sorry that at the moment I forget the name of this um, initiative, but there's an initiative that is training young people, particularly young women of color, to run for elective office. And I know someone um, in that mix who's running for office in Baltimore City, but it's really to get a new generation of people engaged in the electoral process and to really put themselves out there. Because, you know, a lot of this A lot of the hardcore politics of our country, particularly the electoral national politics, have really 
rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and really pushed a lot of good people away from ever thinking that they may run for office, whether it's local school board or county council or planning commission, you know, or certainly any higher office than that. People like, I I, I don't want to be a part of that, you know, but if they're not a part of that, you get folks in office making decisions that actually adversely hurt people like the vote in Congress yesterday to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Okay, so now you've talked about this concept of intersectionality and you know, you and I have had lots of discussions about about the various different groups that are similarly situated or or have significantly overlapping agendas, but who don't really work together as well as they should or could. So what is your sense of is that going to change and, and is that a permanent change or is that a, uh, a short term change? I think it really is changing. And the sector that I know the most, because it's the sector that I'm a part of and I've been a part of for most of my career, which is the environmental sector, seems to be a place where a lot of sort of dramatic change is happening. And and one of the things that's happening is that um, people... so. You know, we've been having this running conversation. I have been in this conversation for 30 years about sort of like the, the hashtag Oscar so white, environmentalist so white. You know, why is that? Um, and I have been in that conversation for 30 years with a lot of pushback that, you know, we are who we are. We like who we are. We reflect a certain segment of society and we're OK with that. Well, you know, and I would say early on that, well, you can be okay with that, but if you really want to make fundamental structural change in our country, that's not okay, right? And the same is true for sort of, you know, some of the, the things that, that are being revealed about, you know, who voted for whom in our national elections last November, that there is a whole segment of society that does not feel that any of us in the civic space are speaking for them, with them, about them, but are speaking over them, past them, right? And I have been sort of doing this work at the ground level to make sure that people are connected to this bigger conversation. But I'm sort of a unique person that I'm in all of these spaces, right? So I could have, I marched where I marched in the march in the frontline communities with the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum on Climate Change. Um, but I could have been at the back of the march with the environmentalists because I belong there too. I could have been with the faith folks because I belong there too. I marched where, where I did, but I'm one of the few people in the environmental community that really touches on all these sectors, but they all make me crazy because they, you know, they spend so much time trying to figure out and articulate why they're not on the same page and spend a fraction of the same amount of time trying to figure out their common interests. And I think the level of threat right now is so big um, that people have really suspended a lot of the nonsense that has kept us from working together over the decades. And one way that I know that is happening at a real level, Mike, is that a lot of the big green groups, the national environmental groups are engaging in diversity, equity and inclusion training for their staffs and their boards and their members. That's different than the quote unquote diversity training, you know, that we all have experienced in one form or another over the last 20 years. And we're also seeing a deep conversation around sort of inclusivity, but also broadening our environmental community to include not just people of color, but poor and working class white communities, folks who live in communities that are coal dependent, whose local economies are entirely dependent on coal extraction and other extractive industries that 
we really got to broaden our tent and we have nobody to blame but ourselves for the narrowness of the path that we've been on. But if we want to be effective, particularly around issues of climate change and global warming, we have got to have a, a much bigger audience of people who are paying attention to this, these issues and working together from the local level to the national level to the international level. And that's why I thought Saturday's march was so important. So I actually had a, a touch of heat stroke while I was out there in the march. And so I stopped right after we did this sort of common action at the White House. So I stopped and sat on the curb and just watched people go by. I was trying to wait for the environmental groups to, to get there, but they were so far back that I, I just couldn't stay out there that long. But while I was there, I just was taking pictures and watching everybody go by. And it was a thing of beauty. It was young people, right? Defenders of the future. It was the science community. It was the faith community. It was organized labor. You know, we're usually not on the same page with organized labor about a lot of issues, and but they were out there strong. It was teachers. It was nurses. It was, you know, it was everybody. And it was amazing. So we got to sustain that. That's the thing. It can't be a one-off. It's got to be something we sustain. I'm struck by this this notion of this this kind of, I think I, I shared with you that the I saw a panel of the, of the women who organized the Women's March. And mm-hmm. one of the organizers talked about how amazing it was they were able to put together this. They used a Google Doc to organize the, the march and the principles of the march and how how amazing easily it was that they could they could do this and 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 work together and she attributed it to the fact that there were no dudes involved which um <laughs> which you know may may very well be true but it didn't seem like that's the kind of thing you want to say if you want to start building a bigger tent yeah. and and I'm struck by this kind of notion kind of just across the board that we're we're very tribal as as people right so so to some degree it's those it's those tribal affiliations that give us energy and and a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. But they're also then that becomes the problem in terms of how do we move forward, right? So, and I'm struck by not only like, you know, we're very tribal in terms of our national politics at the moment. You know, people feel like they're either Republicans or Democrats and, and they have a hard time seeing the hypocrisy of their own side or at least admitting the hypocrisy of their own side mm-hmm. because of that tribal identity. That's part of who they are. And then even within on one side or the other, right, there's on the Republican side, there might be, you know, there's the, the Freedom Caucus versus the Tuesday morning group in, in the House of Representatives. And then on the, you know, on the on the political left, on a larger side, there's the conversation you're talking about. There's the environmental justice people or there's the environmentalists or there's or there's labor. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering are we doing enough work to overcome that tribalism or are we just expanding or working with other tribes at the moment because we're losing it's expedient it's expedient we're losing rather than developing a more understanding and a deeper connection that would go beyond just you know the environmentalist and the environmental justice people to folks who live in rural communities to folks who live in whole communities yep So I think some of us are really, so there's really been, I would say over the last five years within the environmental community, there's been this reckoning, uh, long time in coming, you know, people have been trying to have this conversation in a meaningful way for a long time. And I'm not exactly sure 
what it was that got people to be open to the fact that, you know, you cannot continue to operate and try and affect national policy by representing, you know, the top 10% of wage earners and, you know, mostly affluent and middle-class white communities. Those are not the only communities in the United States. And if you want to have broad-based impact, you've really got to reach a much broader, much deeper constituency. That, that really, you know, is, is activating and doing things and, you know, and trying to drive change in their local communities. And so I would say I think that process has been underway for the last five years. And we try to also be instructive about some of the things that happened. Like there was a, a bill, a climate change bill called the Waxman-Markey bill, you know, formulated mostly by an insular group of Democratic leaders, Democratic leaders in Congress and the mainstream environmental groups. And it went down in flames. And so when it went down, uh, I'm on a couple of boards and folks are like, you know, well, Vernice, you don't seem really upset. I said, no, I would have been upset if it passed and it didn't speak to the reality of all these other constituencies that were not reflected in that bill. So it going down, I don't, I don't have any skin in that game. I'm not at all upset about it. In fact, I'm glad that it went down because maybe now we can come together in a much more broad-based way and advocate for policy that's going to lift up folks who live in communities where extractive industries are the only economy. So we talk about, you know, shutting down uh, coal-fired power plants, but I don't hear any environmentalists talking about what happens to the people who work in the power plants, right? Or who work feeding the stock, you know, digging the coal. So we have one really great example of of that conundrum right now. So EPA and the state of, I want to say it's Arizona, I think, have finally agreed to close down the worst polluting power plant in the country, which is a power plant called the Four Corners Power Plant, which is on the Navajo Nation land in um, in Arizona. I think it's Arizona. And everybody was focused on, we got to get that bad boy shut down because it's just such a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and carbon emissions, et cetera. And I was at a facilitating a workshop for US EPA on the clean power plan a couple of years ago, and they brought the environmental director of the Navajo Nation to the workshop. And, you know, he gets up and he talks about how that power plant is the largest employer on the Navajo Nation. Right. If you know anything about the Navajo Nation, you would know that they have a huge landmass, but they are a destitutely poor population of people. Even though there's the largest power plant in the nation is on their land, many of their households do not have electricity today in 2017. So the reality that he brought to that conversation was like, I get where you all are coming from. I also want to see carbon emissions come down, but not if it means that the largest employer on the Navajo Nation is going to have to shut down. So they actually had decertified the plant, and now there's a process underway to recertify the plant and keep it open until 2019. But in the meantime, what the environmentalists can contribute to that effort is a real plan in partnership with the Navajo Nation about what the green economy would look like for the Navajo Nation. And how they would own it, right? Not just lease it from somebody else, but how they would own it and be able to build wealth on their reservation and for their people. And the Navajo Nation is a very, it's geographically really large, but it's also a lot of people from a, you know, from an indigenous standpoint. So those kind of issues are coming up and people are being thoughtful about how to address them. So instead of just everybody shutting down the Navajo Nation and saying, you know, you people don't know what you're talking about. This is bigger than the Navajo Nation. No, for the Navajo Nation, this is the big thing. Right. And so 
We are now having conversations about issues like that, that are complex, that are not easily answered, that you can't answer with a, you know, with a throwaway line, um, like carbon-free future. We all want a carbon-free future. Well, a lot of us want a carbon-free future, but there's a lot of steps to get there. And going through Appalachia and coal country has proven to be a very difficult path to navigate. We've got to do a better job of actually meeting with folks, talking with folks, and coming up with plans that we all get behind that really lift up these local economies. Um, Right now, there's a new plan on the table that just came out last Wednesday called Empower Kentucky. Um, It's a plan put together by Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, an extraordinary organization that I would uh, recommend that our leaders go and check out online, www.Kentuckians for the Commonwealth or KF, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, KFCW. And they are just doing extraordinary work, meeting with the United Mine Workers, meeting with the owners of coal companies, meeting with local governments across Kentucky to come up with a plan for Kentucky about how to transition from a coal-based economy to a green economy and a cleaner future. But they're working that at the local community level. And we we got to get in there and support people who are doing work like that. It can't just be the privileged few getting in a room and saying, oh, we think this is the best plan. Now we're going to roll that out and we're, we're going to work behind that. That's no way to, you know, to, to, to build and sustain a social movement. It's no way to set national policy. And that's the way we in the progressive community have done it for a really long time. So we, we really have to do some critique of ourselves and, and change the way we do this. That's why I was so glad to see labor out there with us, right? So there, one of the unions that walked by was um, Local 32BJ, which is a, a union out of New York City. I think they're here in, in D.C. also. Janitors, right? So there were janitors out there marching for climate change. So when, you know, when I see that kind of intersectionality happening, I am encouraged that you know, maybe we, are, we have learned some lessons and we're going in a different direction. Right. And we've talked about that a lot on, on this podcast about the need to balance equity and employment with the environmental issues. And, you know, even if you're not at the level where you, you know, you just accept this, that's just a moral issue. Like we can't leave anybody behind. We want to protect the planet, but we're protecting the planet for people. I think there's a cold reality now that folks need to see in terms of the electoral map, right? So there's a lot of uh, people and a lot of um, congressional districts and a lot of Senate seats and a lot of electoral college votes in places that are getting left behind in the modern economy, right? So, you know, we can have a long discussion about things like globalization, but the reality is that the overall, in aggregate, we know that a green economy, we know that trade, we know that globalization at some level produces significantly, in aggregate, better economic outcomes. The problem is there's significant winners and losers Absolutely. and there's significant, there can be significant environmental impacts, right? So we, we just need to do better with that. Unfortunately, Vernice, we're out of time today. So we're going to have to pick this discussion up on a on a future podcast. Will there be another People's Climate March? Is there is that in the works? Do you know? I think there's all kinds of local work in the works. I think that there definitely will still be, you know, national convenings. I don't know when we will, you know, come together to march again, but I'm sure that there will be another one. And, uh, you know, the last, the last plug I just wanted to give Mike is that one of the extraordinary pieces of organizing that happened is that local communities, frontline communities 
were in partnership with the philanthropic sector and national environmental groups that provided resources for people to organize and mobilize buses from communities across the United States to bring people to the People's Climate March. So in the the group that I was in, people were mobilized from New York City, from uh, Virginia, all across Virginia, um, starting in in Newport News and 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 coming north um, from Georgia, from Texas, from Louisiana, from California, from Minnesota, um, people had organized buses from Detroit, and people came from all over the country on a bus. You know, I just had to take the metro, and that's another story that we have to talk about the next time that D- D.C. government shut down the metro and really caused a lot of problems of people getting to the march. But people came anyway. My point is that people really threw in together. And that's what it's going to take to, to to move this conversation forward is us standing together and lifting each other up. And that really did happen. And it lifted my spirits in a way that, you know, I just couldn't imagine just being out in a march could do. But I, you can tell I'm still fired up about being out there last Saturday. Bernice, thank you so much. Thanks for a great uh, and thoughtful conversation. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.